You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to this, the Catholic Exchange Podcast on the face of St. Casimir, the great prince and saint. It's my pleasure to welcome here Dale Alquist of the America Chesterton Society. Dale is the host of the Apostle of Common Sense on EWTN. He's written numerous books on Chesterton and has really been the champion of Chesterton in North America and throughout the world. So, Dale, thank you very much for joining us today. My great pleasure, Michael, especially on the Feast of St. Casimir. Oh, yeah. He's one of my favorites, too. Is, and, is that an occasion for us to uh, get rid of our Lenten privations and really celebrate? Uh, I can have a glass of wine today, right? Is that, is that what that means? I don't know. I mean, I try to find every excuse I can, but the bishop allows me quite a few, quite a bit of leeway. I'm not Polish, though, so (laughs) some issues. (laughs) But today, uh, we have the announcement of the American Gesture to Society's conference up in August in Houston. Uh, Sophie Institute Press will be there, so will I. First off, for all our listeners out there, can you just give us a brief intro to who Chesterton is, and why haven't we heard of him? Yeah, gladly. Uh, Chesterton, during his lifetime, was certainly one of the most famous writers in the world and uh, mm-hmm. was someone that everyone knew. Uh, he wrote on everything. He was a journalist whose subject matter uh, knew no boundaries. He he wrote on literature and art, but also on politics and economics and Hmm. on philosophy and theology, and uh, pulled it all together so he didn't write about each of these things. He wrote about all of them at once, and uh, hence he has defied all categorization because uh, people would like to put him in a narrow pigeonhole, and he doesn't fit into any of those uh, as as someone who really was a complete thinker. And uh, he surprised mm-hmm. the world in, uh, in 1922 when it was... Uh, it was announced that he had been received into the Catholic Church, and you know what really Chesterton was so was so well known that his conversion was front page news in uh, oh, wow. in newspapers around the world, and uh, continued to be just a great spokesman for for the church and 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 for really uh, Christian morality in a world that was beginning to turn its back on it, and uh, he turned out to be very prophetic and. In seeing the decline of uh, of our modern world and and just watching modern philosophies uh, uh, fall apart, so that when you read Chesterton today, you see you feel like he's writing for today. He he te- mm-hmm. definitely is a voice that is addressing the problems of the modern world, uh, doing so from his vantage point of a hundred years ago. Uh, and T- Chesterton, as as you and I both know, Michael is someone that when you read him, he starts to change your life. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he brings a lot of people right to the doors of the Catholic Church. And uh, I think you and I are both on that list. Oh, yes. And we're, I know I'm very much on that list. He brought me not only to Catholic Church, but uh, to sanity, really, <laughs> is what I like to say to people, is he kept me from really losing it. So I'm indebted to him to say the least truly is a defender of sanity um the, the <laughs> yeah. world is insane and reading chesterton is really a refreshing bout of sanity that's a great way to put it and uh we have a conference as i mentioned that we'll all be there you'll be hosting as always but i'll be there selling books and meeting folks 
Can you tell us what this year's conference theme is? Uh, we have a Chesterton conference every year, a national Chesterton mm-hmm. conference. It uh, we, we have made it a movable feast in that it starts going to uh, <laughs> different cities every year. We used to have it in uh, the Twin Cities in, in St. Paul uh, uh, mm-hmm. at the University of St. Thomas. It was there for 11 years, but we, we packaged it and put it on the road, and it has been all over the country and continue to draw not only a, a core group of people that will follow us around the country to attend the, this great conference, but also you know from a, a new region every year. And this year we're going to be uh, down in San Antonio, Texas, uh, the second mm-hmm. uh, weekend of um, August, the first full weekend, August 6th through 8th, in the historic Menger Hotel, um, which is it's very fitting because uh, Chesterton... Um, has a connection with two very famous people who visited the the Manger Hotel. One of them was Oscar Wilde. <laughs> oh, and uh, there'll be a talk on Oscar Wilde and and Chesterton uh, given by uh, Joseph Pierce, who has written just a one, a one of the best biographies of Oscar Wilde ever written. And uh, quite agree. And then uh, and then our our man Chuck Chalberg, who portrays G.K. Chesterton on our show on EWTN on the Apostle of Common Sense. He will be making an appearance as none other than Teddy Roosevelt, oh, wow. who also visited the Manger Hotel, where he recruited the Rough Riders for the, uh, ah. the famous charge up the San Juan Hill in the Spanish-American War. <laughs> so he'll be recreating the recruiting in the same bar where <laughs> where Teddy Roosevelt was. So, but but the. Um, the theme of the conference. So I shouldn't sign papers that weekend yeah. with Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? Okay, just checking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh, uh, the theme of the conference is is a miscellany of men. It's the same mm-hmm. title of a of a book that Chesterton wrote. So we are really taking a uh, a wide variety of thinkers and writers that Chesterton has an association with, uh, and the, most of the talks will be. Uh, you know, spread out of, among these these different writers and thinkers, uh, and really, we're talking about a huge variety. We we already mentioned Oscar Wilde, but uh, there'll be a talk on Chesterton and Fulton Sheen. Uh, oh. Fulton Sheen was really influenced by uh, by G.K. Chesterton. A lot mm-hmm. of people don't don't realize how much Sheen was influenced by him to the, to the point that a lot of the great Fulton Sheen quotes are really Chesterton quotes that. Were just so ingrained in in Archbishop Sheen's head that he uh, he was quoting them without acknowledging that they were Chesterton quotes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'll tell you, one of them uh, is uh, please the uh, we don't need a church that moves with the world. We need a church that moves the world. Mm. Typical good Chesterton uh, uh, line that, uh, that that sounds like Sheen would say. <laughs> And then uh, uh, there'll be a, a talk on Chesterton and Schopenhauer, great 19th century mm-hmm. pessimistic philosopher who helped lay the groundwork for modern philosophy and and its mm-hmm. despair. Uh, Chesterton took on Schopenhauer in some of his earliest articles. And, um, and then there'll be a talk on Chesterton and William Cobbett, someone that most people probably haven't heard of who was a very important English writer of the early, uh, or the late 18th century. And, um, no, yeah, late 18th century and very influential and kind of laid, laid the groundwork for Chesterton's own thinking on, on social justice. And, um, 
and and he was a journalist and, a, and really a character much like Chesterton, really very uh, widely uh, published and, and you know wrote on just all different things, just just like Chesterton. And Chesterton wrote a book on William Cobbett. He, he's someone that everyone needs to rediscover. William Cobbett's one of these figures that. He he remained a Protestant, and yet he wrote a book on the Reformation that absolutely excoriates the Church of England and Henry VIII as, as just having stolen stolen the religion of the people from them, and you know destroying the monasteries and everything. And uh, oh, <laughs> read, read that book if you ever get a chance. The, the history of the uh, of the infor- of the Reformation in England and Ireland, and uh, you, you can't believe that. The writer is not a Catholic because he certainly takes the Catholic position. I could see that, and I know that was certainly true of a lot of Chesterton's early work before he converted in 1922 that he seemed to have. Would you say, well, you'll have to see if we, you and I agree on this, but he seemed to have a lot of skepticism towards the idea of the Reformation, especially in regards to the church in England. Would you say that's accurate? Oh, I would say that's absolutely accurate. He, It's interesting. Before his conversion, Michael, he seems to be thinking already like a Catholic and defending the Catholic mm-hmm. position. And uh, you know, you read his book Orthodoxy, which just is just this classic work of Christian apologetics. And you know, I defy anyone to find anything in there that indicates that the writer is not Catholic. Um, you know, he refers to the Church with a capital C. He refers to the sacraments, to the priests. And does not say nice things about John Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> no, understandably. <laughs> so, but I, I think he put himself in a position uh, for the longest time as an Anglo-Catholic, as one who was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, considered himself still part of the Catholic tradition, even though uh, an Anglican conversion of it. But it, it's a position that he could no longer sustain, and. Uh, you know, he—he he, it was a long, deliberate conversion as as he moved towards Rome. Yeah, and and I think uh, let's see. Well, I should probably just mention a couple other things about the conference. The uh, there's, oh, a, sure, there's sure. a speaker. Um, we've got. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to remember the other ones. The, there's. Uh, well, I know Kevin O'Brien yeah, is going you. to be there. Thank you, Kevin O'Brien. He's speaking on Orestes Brownson, the great American. Oh, conference. wonderful! Yeah, and. As far as I know, no one has ever given a presentation on on Chesterton and Brownson. You know, Brownson really the probably the most important American convert of the nineteenth century. Oh, hands down. And like Chesterton, not many people read Brownson. Right. I mean, it's amazing how much of an impact he had. And if you would like to, I'd love to our listeners to learn a little bit more about Brownson and why he's so important, especially in light of Chesterton. Go ahead, Michael, lay it on me. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh no, I was just going to explain to our listeners, uh, Orestes Brownson was one of those great American converts. He wrote mostly in the 19th century, especially during the Civil War and post-Civil War years. Had a tremendous impact. Russell Kirk considers him one of the most influential Americans to have ever lived. His documents and his, he was actually so well liked that he was buried at Notre Dame along with his library and had this great impact on many Catholics in America as well as many conservatives in America. And I hadn't read him until about three years ago, so it's intriguing that you guys are also resurrecting Brownson for us here. Yeah, I, I, it's his time that we, you know, that there be a, a Brownson revival. Clearly, because I agree. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's it's part of the Catholic mission to to preserve tradition, and you mm-hmm. know, it's it's we we it's incumbent upon us to to preserve what's incumbent. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> With regarding to preserving tradition, I 
We have a very fine American tradition, especially for all of us who are of Irish descent coming up, uh, St. Patrick's Day. Can you tell us a little bit about Chesterton in Ireland? Yes, Chesterton um, was someone who really took up the Irish cause uh, in his lifetime, which was very much against the grain in England. He he defended the rights uh, uh, of of the Irish people to to really have their mm-hmm. their own uh, their own home rule. Uh, when boy, the people of England just didn't want that at all. And uh, right, he he. He was so well loved by Ireland uh, that the Irish people considered Chesterton more to be more of an Irishman and George Bernard Shaw to be more of an Englishman. (laughs) 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 Uh, And he, you know, visited Ireland uh, on several occasions, and and even you know to do something quite unpopular at one point, he he actually went to Ireland to recruit. uh, men to 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 join the the army in in World War One to help fight, um, and telling them that you know you're not doing this for the sake of England, you're doing this for the sake of yourselves because it's better that we have uh, you know self rule than that we have Prussian rule, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know he was he was actually quite successful in his recruiting uh, activities because he really believed that that. Uh, you know, Western civilization needed to be defended, and uh, the the Prussian rule was was not uh, at all uh, a Christian or, or Western ideal. It was very much a uh, a racial racially charged and uh, mm-hmm. uh, a product of of German philosophy. That you know, things like Schopenhauer and Nietzsche are are present in that philosophy, and it you know it really went down to become Nazism. Chester uh, mm-hmm. was very prophetic in that regard, but in, in regards to the Irish in general, Chesterton, uh, you know, uh, loves loves the Irish for their uh, amazing uh, fortitude, their artfulness, their their joy, their wit, and and he's just always um, uh, he's just just a marvelous job of bringing them out. But but the the two key elements in the Irish that that he loved and defended the most was their sense of family, and their sense of the faith. That's what preserved their culture through really a, a time of unbelievably, unbelievable oppression by the English. Right. Yeah. And uh, you said that he went to Ireland a few times. What was his general impression about going through Ireland during the times of really the Troubles? Yeah, he, uh, you know, those two things that I just mentioned is that he was he was really impressed by the the Irish peasant because of their strong sense of 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 the family and of of mm-hmm. preserving Irish traditions that 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 kept their culture going you know under this this time and uh, I had the privilege of going to Ireland for the first time myself last year and mm. visited a couple of spots that Chesterton had visited and uh, gave a couple of talks that were just really well received uh, uh, that was a real treat for me I, I, uh, to to visit Ireland and. Uh, the people are such great storytellers. It, it, yes. All the things you hear about them are completely true. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's you know, the famous story about Irish bull. Uh, are, you, are you aware of the, the concept of Irish bull? It is, mm-hmm. it is one of those sayings that um, seem, seems like it makes sense, but it really doesn't. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, uh, typical Irish bull is... Well, it's unanimous. We agree on nothing, <laughs> or or it's it's hereditary in his family to not have children. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, I, I Chesterton loved those Irish bulls because they they had this paradoxical quality to them, which is mm-hmm. you know that was the great rhetorical device that Chesterton loved uh, and made such great use of himself was was the paradox uh, of the seeming contradiction that really has a truth in it that that uh, um, surprises you and is unexpected. I, if I recall correctly, um, he also had a great impact on the great revolutionary Michael Collins of Northern Ireland, as well as, strangely enough, if I recall, Gandhi. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's uh, surprising. Uh, Chesterton wrote a, a book called The Napoleon of Notting Hill. Yeah, that was his first novel, and the plot of the novel is that a suburb of London, uh, it's, it's set in the future, interestingly enough, it's set in 1984. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and the connection with George Orwell's book is maybe not incidental. Uh, it's, it's possible that George Orwell was, was influenced by it as well. Um, but that's another story. But the this part of the book is that this suburb in London, Notting Hill, the Kensington district of London, where, where Chester himself mm-hmm. was born, it just decides to declare independence from uh, from England, and uh, they take up armed resistance against England. It all it all is prompted by the by uh, the fact that a consortium of business and political uh, powers want to build a road right through the suburb that would basically destroy the uh, suburb and uh, you know destroy the shops and everything and the, the shopkeepers and the, the local residents take up armed resistance and oh, wow. br- break, break apart from the rest of uh, the country. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Michael Collins in, in uh, Ireland reads this novel and says, well that's exactly what we have to do. We have to declare our independence we we are our own people and we don't we don't need british rule we we, sh- we deserve to rule ourselves and we'll do whatever it takes to do that to accomplish that and um and that's what uh that's what led him to begin the movement for irish home rule and the british cabinet actually all read uh, all read copies of um of the Napoleon of Notting Hill so they could better really? understand the mind of, of Michael Collins. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's an endorsement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should be put on the back of every copy of the Napoleon of Notting yeah. Hill required yeah. in the British cabinet. <laughs> that is brilliant. And, and then the Gandhi, the Gandhi story is, is another fascinating story. It's just the most unexpected thing um, in regards to Chesterton. Uh, it was about 1909, 1910. I can't remember exactly, but it was one of those years when mm-hmm. Chesterton uh, wrote a uh, an essay in the Illustrated London News that uh, Gandhi read when he was a young uh, lawyer studying to be a lawyer. I think he probably he probably already was a lawyer at this point, uh, and he had spent time in in England already. Uh, he'd lived mm-hmm. in London, but at that at that time uh, he read that he was he was already in India. Reads this Illustrated London News essay and it just floors it because the the tone of the essay was uh you have he's referring to these these young indians who are demanding certain rights under under english rule but it seems like what they really want is simply to become more english and he says they should be focusing more on becoming more indian if they if they want to declare their rights they should they should really declare their rights as indians and not as uh, as Englishmen, um, and 
he's just like the Michael Collins revelation. Yes, we are right. our own people. We deserve to rule ourselves. We don't need to be ruled by by England. And uh, it, it was just a, a light that went on, and uh, he immediately uh, translated the uh, the essay and distributed it widely. And uh, that was that was really the first step in in his own uh, his own movement to to lead. Uh, the the cause for the independence of India, so it's just gigantic, oh. really. My goodness, and it, yeah, but again, it goes back to my first question: How come we hadn't heard from him? <laughs> uh, what what on earth happened uh, through the 20th century from the time he died yeah. to now? That means that so few people have read him. Yeah, that's that is true. You know, when I first read Chesterton, which was in 1981, um, hmm? I had read him because. I had just only started to vaguely hear about him. I was a evangelical, a big C.S. Lewis fan. Knew, um, you know, like C.S. Lewis, someone pointed out the connection between Chesterton and C.S. Lewis that that Chesterton was an influence on C.S. Lewis. So I said, okay, well, I've I've got to read some Chesterton to find out, you know, what what is this force behind the great C.S. Lewis? And but you know, I really knew nothing about Chesterton, and I mm-hmm. I. Didn't didn't know anybody else who knew anything about Chesterton either, and uh, and I started with uh, the book that prompted C.S. Lewis's own conversion, which was The Everlasting Man. Oh wow! And that's a tough first read of uh, of any book by Chesterton, but it's it's one of the essential Chesterton books. And you know, I was smitten with him, but also baffled by the fact. Well, here is here is truly a great writer. Uh, you know, really a giant of of English letters. Why is it that I've never heard of him? Why was I never exposed to him in college? Uh, mm-hmm. There's something wrong here, something amiss. But in the in the meantime, I'm trying to get my hands on as many Chesterton books as I possibly can. And at that time, it means scouring the used bookstores for <laughs> right. Uh, and you know, and I just I couldn't read enough at at that point because every time I, I read him, it was. It, it was just fulfilling some other gap in my knowledge because that's that's what he just came. To, he just fills up the gaps in your thinking. That's that's what he does, and uh, you realize how poor your whole education has been. <laughs> uh, and uh, I found it was. It, I actually went on and did a a master's thesis on Chesterton. I did my 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 master's dissertation on Chesterton in the uh, in the mid eighties there and. It wasn't until oh, wow. about 1990 when I found just a small group of people who met once a year in Milwaukee. This this was really the the genesis of of our National Chesterton Conference. Mm-hmm. Um, they met uh, once a year for two three days, and you know, there were maybe 25 people, uh, and they were all much older than me. <laughs> 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 but you know they were keeping the light burning and. Uh, about that time that Ignatius decided that they we're going to start to publish the collected works of Chesterton. And okay. uh, so late 80s when they came out with the first volumes of those and they were not you know not popular not really that that well received at all because again hardly knew who Chesterton was. Mm-hmm. Um and uh I really start at this point was starting to get very serious and and I said you know we can't let the same thing happen to the next generation that's happened to my generation, and that's to to be cheated out of this writer. And mm. and so we we started putting together the the American Chesterton Society, which was gonna 
try to push for the Chesterton revival, try to get his name out there, get people reading him, and uh, and then bring together the the few scattered folks who already did like him and get, get them together. And uh, we few, we happy few. <laughs> <laughs> Very apt. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, in the meantime, Michael Chesterton was doing this number on me, and uh, I find myself easing towards the Catholic Church. And uh, in 1997, I was received into the Catholic Church, and that was sort of the last thing I ever expected to happen to me. But it also turned out to be a great career move because right after, you know, we, we started the American Chester site at the same time, it, with, within two years, um, I got a uh, an email from Marcus Grodi at the EWTN who wanted to do a television uh, program on his journey home on classic converts, and he wanted to do a program on G.K. Chesterton's conversion. Oh, wow. And uh, he asked if, if I knew anybody who uh, who could talk on Chesterton's conversion, and I said, well, I know one person, but I can't give him a very enthusiastic uh, endorsement because it's me but um <laughs> but i can talk about it and i i'm a convert myself so i i he said, oh no you're you're exactly what we want and so you know I was, i'd only been a catholic for two years uh but i was invited to ewtn to 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 marcus's program and um mm-hmm. and you know, talk for an hour with him on his on his wonderful show on, on conversion and at the end of the program, the, the producer came up to me and said, we need to do a whole series on Chesterton. Uh, that's what we need. Wow. And I said, you're absolutely right. And I said, let me, let me see if we can get someone to do that. He said, no, no, we want you. We want you to do it. And uh, <laughs> so uh, the following year, I came down, went down to EWTN and, uh, and re- recorded uh, thir- 15 episodes. And I've you know, done several seasons since then. It's it's still the, the episodes. I mean, the the series still runs after fifteen years. Um, so, wow. So that the the television show really helped create the 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 revival, along with you know the the work of our website and our our magazine, and you know it's it, it continues to spread. But you know the question remains: How? Why did Chester disappear? Why did a whole generation not know who he was? And and I think there's there's probably uh, you know, you know, I gave that a lot of thought uh, over the years. Why, why that happened, and I, and I think there's there's mm-hmm. three three reasons probably why it happened. And the first is is Chesterton died in in 1936, and that was right before World War One began, and or two rather World War Two, and and I, and I think that I think that World War Two really did create an abyss within the century. It sort of broke the century in half, and uh, and everything before. World War II was considered one world, and everything after it was another world. And uh, mm. uh, I think that there was a there was a horror that the that the Western civilization came to terms with that, or, or struggled to come to terms with, uh, as as they just watched such, such terrible things happen uh, in their civilization. Just were confronted with a great darkness that that really had not been faced before that and you know the the art and the the literature really and the really the philosophy all reflected that darkness and that despair mm-hmm. and chesterton's joy his hope his uh his goodness were were just not a welcome voice after that people 
just didn't didn't want to read about joy. They didn't they didn't want to even be comforted. They they wanted the despair. I think after that, and uh, and you see, you know there's the secularization of our um, of of our religious institutions. You know of the college campuses. Even you know even the even the secular campuses themselves stop stop studying um, Western philosophy and and the 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 real great meaning of of life uh and so chesterton's writings just disappeared from the curriculum he would have been read in every college and university uh before world war ii he just disappeared from the curriculum after world war ii and mm-hmm. part of it certainly you know he was too christian friendly and too catholic friendly and uh and there was just no place for that anymore and but you know you know what it comes down to, Michael? The main reason people stopped reading him after his death was because he stopped writing after his death. Oh, <laughs> well, that would do it. <laughs> he, uh, he was a journalist, and people forget that, that his books are really only a fraction of what he wrote, and most people would have read him in the papers. And, mm. uh, and so he, he disappeared from their daily lives, and uh, and that's why he... You know, really disappeared from the next generation. Okay, that certainly makes sense on all fronts. And I know, uh, for as a convert who's been moved by Chesterton, it was really exciting to find him because, as I said, it was like, okay, this makes sense. This is a better way to look at the world. Let's try this. And from there, it's been never looking back. Yeah, so. Amen. Amen. Yeah. There's just always there's always some comfort and always some something fulfilling in what he writes. Chesterton's popularity that's now seems to be having something of a renaissance. I saw that like even uh, the great Marxist philosopher Zizek has quoted him on a few occasions. Are you seeing a little bit more of a renaissance, especially as we keep going? Oh yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no question. His name keeps popping up everywhere now, and that's mm-hmm. the, the quotations. Uh, uh, you know, from just a wide spectrum of of thinkers and writers and public people. Um, and not only is he quoted, but he's misquoted, which is even you know a, gra- a greater sign of his popularity. <laughs> Certainly is. <laughs> uh, regarding uh, his popularity, there's now actually I remember there's some rumblings in the blogs uh, last year and also this year about his possible candidization. Can you enlighten us on that? Well, I have uh, had the privilege of being. Uh, heavily involved in that myself too. It's it's oh, go, goes back to my own my own conversion with uh, with Chesterton when I you know the the community of saints was not at all a part of my own uh, you know belief system as a as a Baptist and uh, and I just didn't understand it at all. But I remember when I when I first heard it suggested back then, even in the boy when this would have this would have been the early nineties when it was first suggested um, mm-hmm. that. Uh, that Chesterton should be considered for, for sainthood. I had just an epiphany, uh, an instantaneous revelation, an understanding of what the community of saints meant, and uh, it made all the sense in the world to me that sure Chesterton would be one who would not only be present with God, but would be someone who would intercede, who would be a model Christian to follow, and and someone who's still speaks across the ages just like any saint and uh, who's someone who's very mm-hmm. much alive and um and 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 to whom you you would be devoted as you would be devoted to a saint 
uh, you know, that doesn't take anything away from your devotion to Christ, but on the contrary, deepens your devotion to Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, I was fascinated by that idea, and you know, nothing really was done with it, and I because uh, it, it just had been floated as a suggestion. That's all. There was really no movement towards it, but I uh, I found myself kind of being being the one leading the push, <laughs> and uh, have have talked with uh, the bishop, uh, a bishop of Northampton, England, both the present and the, his predecessor, who. You know, with with great um, patience and uh, steadiness, and I won't say reluctance, but you know, pay, let's just say you know, waiting. Uh, mm-hmm. They they finally responded, and the present bishop uh, realized that there there is a growing worldwide cult of devotion to Chesterton, and he announced uh, uh, a year and a half ago that uh, he would uh, appoint a investigator to uh mm-hmm. to, to start the, the work and the, the work of the investigator would be to to see if there really is justice for a, a, a opening a cause and that priest uh. who's doing that uh is completing his work i would say within the next few months and we should we should know if there's if things are going to be becoming an official cause before this mm-hmm. before the end of this year so very exciting oh very exciting yeah. uh, for all of us <laughs> believe me yeah. <laughs> We, we we need Michael. We need more three hundred pound cigar smoking saints. <laughs> uh, someone who is not a saint, but definitely of the cigar smoking three hundred pound variety. I agree. <laughs> I need someone to look up to and to guide me because wow. <laughs> uh, now there's uh, been some. I won't necessarily name the authors or anything, but there's been some rumblings about whether or not he can be cause uh, whether his cause of canonization can be open. Namely, people bring up. Uh, the rumors of anti-Semitism as well as, I don't know what you would call it. Like some people seem concerned that he was overweight and I don't know what on earth you would call that, but can you talk a little bit about that with us? Sure. Um, yeah, we'll take the, uh, we'll take the easy one first. Um, okay. He was fat. Uh, yes. and, uh, <laughs> and so was St. Thomas Aquinas, contrary to what anyone says. Uh, and so was, Pope John the Twenty Third, uh, and mm-hmm. it, it didn't seem to be that great an impediment to their canonizations. Uh, okay. so the argument of fatness just doesn't hold up. Uh, but no disagreement here. Yeah, and, but... it, you know it's really interesting because Chesterton himself, uh, there's really no evidence of of gluttony. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, I. You know, I've done quite a bit of research, and one of Chesterton's best and lifelong friends really said, not only did he not eat very much, but but he he claimed he had some sort of glandular condition. But Chesterton's weight really, really um, varied throughout his life. Uh, you, you, right. you see pictures of him where he's clearly not not that heavy, uh, um, but there were a couple of times where he he grew very heavy, and and it probably was related to something else. Um, but um, but he did he did smoke and drink and if it, what's so interesting is that this is the the great battle that Chesterton did during his lifetime was with the puritans right who uh who puritanism he describes as righteous indignation about the wrong things <laughs> perfect and, and he was, remember he's writing during prohibition too and he, he oh, just my goodness. think of the mess that prohibition created when you take away just a basic pleasure a 
basic right of of the common man and trying to to make something that's not evil into an evil is is something that just ends up screwing up an entire culture and and we are still still living with the results of prohibition which we're, we're still living with the results of puritanism that, oh, that yes. have, have kind of uh made everything go askew in in the country we still are you know at least the old puritans used to be christian the new puritans aren't even christian they're you know they they hold up health as this ideal and if something is is not healthy it is evil and right. and they are you know using health as the new god and as the new standard and health is a pretty tricky standard uh but you know that's why we're we're fighting the battles we're fighting because um, we're, we're worshiping a false god, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then the, the anti-Semitism one, of course, is is you know really a serious charge. And um, and I'll tell you, it is, it's a poisonous charge too, because it it's one of those things where, as soon as uh, the accusation is leveled, it is it seems like it's guilty until proven innocent. Uh, uh, it, it gets often repeated that Chesterton was anti-Semitic by people who absolutely don't know what they're talking about, and uh, it took, for me, it's very frustrating because uh, you know I have to correct that uh, that that accusation, co- correct that misconception about Chesterton. Oh, I'm sure. And we we did devote an entire issue of Gilbert Magazine to the question, and and people can get that uh, magazine online at our website at mm-hmm. Chesterton.org, and it really deals with the question very thoroughly. Uh, it's an unfair charge; it's unjustified, but it comes from the fact that Chesterton spoke openly about the Jews as he spoke openly about anyone, um, without any reservation, uh, and. You know, he'd be considered anti-American for his criticisms of Americans, but he certainly wasn't. He's never called anti-American, right? Uh, but just because he he's able to to criticize any group of people for whatever weaknesses or whatever bad decisions they make, or or for whatever their characteristics happen to be, without any rancor, without any uh, prejudice, and certainly without any hatred. Uh, Chesterton mm-hmm. loved. Uh, not only did he love the Jewish people, but you know, as the as the old saying goes, several of his best friends were Jewish, and and truly, we're talking about lifelong friends who who were absolutely devoted to him, who who also had to defend him against the charge of of anti-Semitism. Right, and if I recall, he was he and Belloc were, if I recall, early supporters of a Jewish homeland in yes. the Middle East. Yes, and 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 mm-hmm. Chesterton, you know, his. He wrote a book, The New Jerusalem, was very much a, a defender of, of, of Zionism and, and was recruited by the Jews uh, of that era uh, to write on the, on the subject because he, oh, wow. he, he, he believed clearly that the Jews were uh, an, uh, a nation without a country. And they, you know, mm. they were a nation that was spread out across Europe that needed their own homeland because they needed their own autonomy. It's really the same argument he had for the Irish and for the Indians. That mm-hmm. that they deserve their independence and their own uh, autonomy, and what they lacked, of course, was a homeland, and mm. that's what they needed. You mentioned a uh, prohibition. It's little known that Chesterton did a great tour through America during the height of prohibition, which I wonder if that inspired some of his thoughts on it. Can you talk <laughs> a little bit about what his trips? What did he see in America, so to speak? Yeah, he he made two trips to uh, to America. One in 
1921 and then the other mm-hmm. in 1930 31 and so sort of right wow. at the beginning of prohibition and then right at, at its end but both times during prohibition and, and during both trips he also uh visited canada and he said he he felt like uh like one of the the slaves who had escaped during uh, the time of slavery when he went to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> there was still freedom to, to drink. But one of the first things he wanted to visit when he came to America was a speakeasy. He, he wanted to find out <laughs> where, where the illegal drinking was going on. And and, there were, and then he was a, a guest lecturer at, at the University of Notre Dame for six weeks. And mm-hmm. one thing, the one thing about Prohibition that pleased him was how many Notre Dame professors were... Uh, Brewing their own beer and distilling their own spirits, and he says, you know, at least there's some some great uh, ingenuity being shown in independence. <laughs> yes, uh, and so uh, we all hope brewers take to heart. Yeah, believe me. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, he what what he loved about America was he says the American people. What he disliked about America was the American ideal. He says the, the American is all right. It's the it's the ideal American that's all wrong, mm-hmm. uh, and it's that idea of of hustle and materialism and uh, material success. You know, the, the so-called American dream is really a misplaced ideal. But he said most Americans really weren't like that, and that's what pleased him so much. Uh, he he was you know. Uh, always impressed by the lack of um, uh, class distinction that he observed in America, that, that truly there was this democratic spirit, which which was his great belief was in democracy. And, uh, and he, he saw some real signs of of it working in, in America. Of course, at, at that time, he loved the small family farm that he, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was part of the culture that, of course, has since very much disappeared. And, uh, um, you know how everything is congregated to the cities, you know, because he says the 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 worst problem has not been everyone rushing to the cities, but he says the uh, the city teachers going to the countries, <laughs> to the country, oh. <laughs> and uh, you know that that this he 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 was he was worried that the that rural America would lose its character, and uh, he I think he was very much right about that. Oh, yes, he he also you know it's interesting he you know someone who came from Europe and especially from England. You know the small English village is, it, you know, it really is a thing of of picture postcards. It's just so scenic, so quaint and beautiful, and he he was kind of surprised at how ugly American towns were, <laughs> and they they just they they it was probably because they were so new and they were so, uh, you know, put put up so quickly. But there there was just very little character he he saw in the small American town and and. Um, you know, it, it, it just was. It showed it showed a lack of a lack of a cultural understanding, it's because it was just still a very new country. You know, if you think about that. Yeah. Your the final question. This won't be easy. Aside from meeting you and I, aside from meeting you and I, what are the three reasons why people should come to the conference this August? Uh, well, they should also to meet each other. Uh, the Chestertonians oh, yes. are are certainly the most enjoyable group of people on earth. Uh, you know, we 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 know how to uh, to have to experience Christian joy. Uh, Chesterton says the the modern world is distinctive for its appalling lack of joy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we we are serious about our faith and serious about great ideas. And certainly, there's going to be intellectual fireworks. 
but we also know how to enjoy ourselves and enjoy each other, enjoy God's goodness. Um, mm-hmm. And that, you know, the, the opposite of, uh, of, of serious, Chester says the opposite of funny is, is not serious. The opposite of funny is not funny. And, and we know, we know how to laugh and uh, that's a, just, just come for the laughter. But uh, there's going to be some great, uh, great books available, great discussion available. And, um, and also it's really a, it's, it's like a spiritual retreat at the same time. Ah, uh, very good. Well, I know I'm looking forward to it and I'm looking forward to all our listeners out there that are hearing us, all our readers come visit, stop by the Sophia Institute table. You can meet your, the giant man that's in the room right now. And it will be great to meet Dale as well. And Dale, I thank you so much for coming here and enlightening us on Chesterton and the society. You do some great work, and it's been my pleasure to have you here today. Michael, you're very kind to invite me to speak with you, and and thanks for all the good work that you're doing as well. Oh, thank you. God bless you. God bless. And that was, once again, Dale Alquist, president of the American Chesterton Society, as well as the host of EWTN's The Apostle of Common Sense. Dale lives up in Minnesota, but he'll be joining us in San Antonio, hosting the American Chesterton Society's annual conference. If you happen to be in Texas during that time or want to join us, I'll be there, and I would love to meet each and every one of you, especially you, our listener. Sophia Institute Press will be there selling books, so it will be a great time to stock up, meet folks, have a good time. I'll look forward to seeing all of you there if I can. And finally, once more, thank you, Dale, for joining us. Hope you all are having a great Lent. I hope you can read some Chesterton this time around, as well as the great books by Sophia. You can pick up G.K. Chesterton, Theologian, by Father Nichols from sophiainstitute.com. Otherwise, God love you all, have a wonderful week, and I will see you once the snow has melted.